0: Hi, I'm Emily, and today's reading is from Mark 11, verses 1 to 25. I'm reading from the NIV. So that's Mark 11, verse 1 to 25. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, tell him, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly." They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, "'What are you doing, untying that colt?' They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins.
1: I was listening to a radio programme the other day which was talking about how all, kind of, all the different world leaders are getting on uh, in terms of popularity and reputation during this COVID-19 crisis. So you've got um, back in the UK, you've got Boris, he's doing alright for himself and he's trying to sound as much like Winston Churchill as he can. Angela Merkel, she's really popular at the moment, not least because Germany's had a really low death rate compared to everybody else. And what about Russia? How are Russia going to get on with uh, Vladimir Putin? How's he going to get on there? Well, on paper, it should do really well because Russia have got more hospitals per capita than any other nation. And they've also got more doctors per capita than anyone else. But it turns out at least a third of those hospitals don't even have running water. And it turns out that all those doctors are saying... We've only got half as many intensive care beds as we should have, and that's just in normal times, let alone when there's a crisis on. So what looks like it could have been relied on to save people is actually dangerously lacking. What looks like it could be relied on to save people is actually dangerously lacking. And the coronavirus, this coronavirus lockdown, the restrictions that we're all living under um, right now, they're they're interesting times, aren't they? And personally, I think we'll get through it and I think we'll get on top of it and we'll look back on this time and be quite proud of ourselves as a nation for how how we've done. But for now, lots of things are being taken away from us, aren't they? Um, Meeting in sport, meeting in cafes, going out for meals, going to the cinema, going to the gym. It's not all bad, is it? Anyway, as as each of these things is taken away, it hits us in the face just how much we've taken them for granted. And when we feel deeply grieved by losing these things we can do in everyday life, we see that they've become idols for us. And all added up, their loss shows us that trying to find meaning and security only in the things we can see in this life alone, trying to find meaning and security in all that we can see in this life alone, just doesn't deliver. The usual things that we trust to save us in the world just aren't up to the job. They're too fragile. They're too temporary. What looks like it could be relied on to save is actually actually dangerously lacking. What looks like it could be relied on to save is actually dangerously lacking. In today's passage that uh, Emily read for us, Jesus is welcomed by the crowds of Jerusalem. But it's a Jerusalem that's relying on dead going through the motions, religiosity. A Jerusalem that is quite pleased with itself, says to itself, look, it doesn't matter what we do, we've got the temple, God is on our side. Again, what looks like it could be relied on to save is actually dangerously lacking. Uh, There's an outline of this talk in your notes tab, um over on the right, uh, but three three headings, three sections: a grand entrance, a grand rejection, and a grand salvation grand entrance, grand rejection, grand salvation and we 'll look at how Jesus rejects the idea of presuming that we 'll be all okay with God being presumptuous, and we 'll see how he tells us to actually get right with God, but first. He makes his grand entrance, our first heading. So Jesus' grand entrance, declaring himself publicly as the Messiah, God's rescuer king. And we get loads of details, don't we? And I love that we'd get to know not just that Jesus rode on a colt, and Mark specifically means a donkey here, not just that he did, but how he came to get this colt. And I just love how earthy and realistic it sounds. You know, the villagers saying to the disciples when they come for this donkey, what are you doing t- untying that colt? It's just what would happen, isn't it? Anyway, in this episode, this, these plans and getting the cult, Jesus is showing that he's in complete and deliberate control of his entering into Jerusalem on his terms how he wants to. Jesus has purposely chosen to come to Jerusalem um, coming knowing he's going to be rejected, he's going to suffer and be crucified. Uh, and he chooses to do that to save us. And up till now, Jesus has been keeping his clar- cards close to his chest. And when people have been recognising him as God's chosen one, the long-promised Saviour King or Messiah, keep using that word Messiah, when people have recognised him as the Messiah, he's told them to keep quiet about it, although usually they don't. But now he's intentionally um, arrives at Jerusalem like a triumphant king in a really public way at the busiest time of year, at Passover, when every good Israelite would make the effort to make go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So he'd be absolutely chockers. And he deliberately does it in a way which shows for everyone to see that he is God's rescuer king, that he is the Messiah. In the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah talked about the Messiah coming. So Zechariah nine. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey ring any bells well the crowd seemed to recognize jesus is the messiah you see at passover they would sing very particular psalms this is called the psalms of ascent and they're psalms especially written for the pilgrimage journey to jerusalem it's a bit like you always sing carols at christmas same principle And they've ascribed one of these psalms, Psalm 118, that's about the Messiah, to Jesus as he enters. Verse 9. Those who went ahead, back in Mark now, verse 9. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Another prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, said, uh, and you might remember this from when we looked at the very start of Mark's gospel, um, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now that was fulfilled by John the Baptist, so tell us Malachi what happens next. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And sure enough, Jesus goes to the temple courts. So here he is, at long last, hundreds of years in the waiting. God's promised rescuer is at last at ground zero for God being with his chosen people, the temple. And here he is, Jesus, the Messiah, finally here, and he has a look around, decides it's a bit late, and goes back to the Airbnb he's got with his disciples. Now, we're not told what he saw when he looked around that evening, what he was stewing on overnight, but the following verses in that prophecy from Malachi give us a clue. So we just read verse one, but verse two said, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So in other words, Jesus has come to save people, but he also comes... As judge. See, we've all broken our relationship with God. We've all, in various ways, loved ourselves more than we've loved Him. And throughout Mark's Gospel, we've seen Jesus uh, come to put that right for anyone who will trust in Him, anyone who will put their faith in Him and believe Him. But we've also seen Him bring judgment against those who will reject his offer. And that's what Jesus did back then. That's what Jesus does now. Every time we tell people the good news about Jesus, we share the gospel about him. And that's what he'll do once and for all in the future. With the entry into Jerusalem, Jesus partly fulfills what those Old Testament prophets said. He is God's king coming home and his rule has started. But you don't need a COVID-19 crisis to know that his kingdom isn't fully here yet. But he has promised to return to settle everything once and for all. And if this crisis has got you thinking about the bigger picture, about what happens when we die, well, that's a good thing. Because God promises there is a day when he'll come to judge everyone perfectly. And not one of us can claim to be up to scratch. But Jesus offers us rescue. Jesus rescues us into God's family and he's the only one that can give us that rescue. We'll see how we can know that rescue, how we can know that salvation in our last section. But for now Jesus has got business at the temple. A grand rejection. That's our next heading, a grand rejection. And it all begins in verse 12, uh, verses 12 to 14, with a run-in with a fig tree. Now, here's the late, great Terry Jones uh, talking about when Monty Python were writing The Life of Brian. But then we all went away and did our research and we started reading the Gospels again. And uh, I think all unanimously came to the conclusion, well, you know, Christ wasn't a bad bloke, really. There's not a lot you can... uh make fun of. I mean I would quarrel with him on a few occasions. I think he I think he was, didn't do right by some of the fig trees in the world. I think he'd blast them a bit and I think that was a bit wrong of him. And some of the swine, I think he shouldn't have treated swine like he did. But generally he was a good bloke and so, you know, we felt well we don't have any quarrel with Christ. We're uh, rather on his side. Why has Jesus got it in for this fig tree? Now, I'm no gardener, but the experts tell me that um, figs usually grew before the leaves appeared. So Jesus, seeing this tree at a distance, uh, looking at it from a distance, albeit out of season, as Mark says, this tree looks like you'd find a load of figs on it. It looked like a fruitful tree. But on closer inspection, it hasn't got anything. And Jesus says... May no one eat fruit from you ever again. In other words, even though you look great, you aren't delivering what you're supposed to. So your fig growing days are over. And sure enough, verse 20, in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And this is another example of a sandwiching Mark. So the fig tree is the bread that tells us how to understand Jesus' actions and words in the temple in between. So just to explain the temple, you know, for Israel, the temple was really important. See, they were God's chosen people. They had a special relationship with him and nothing showed that off more than the temple. So this is my favourite building in my hometown of Manchester. It's got a beautiful dome in the middle of it. It's got this, you know, 30s Art Deco architecture. And it's just a library. What about Adelaide? What's Adelaide got? Well, there's the Mall's Balls. Mm -hmm. Adelaide Oval. That's quite impressive, I suppose. And of course, there's the most spectacular building. Magic Mountain. Classic. Well, Jerusalem. Had the house of the creator of the universe in the middle of town. But Jesus had time to sleep on what he saw last night. And he's not impressed. God himself has turned up in person at his own house of prayer. And has found a car boot sale in there. So Jesus brings in his own lockdown restrictions, doesn't he? Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. You see, the temple courts were kind of um, the outer area where non-Jewish people were supposed to be able to come and worship God. In a kind of architectural parable of of the end of time when the nations will come to worship God. See, Israel were God's special chosen people, but they were chosen with a purpose in mind. The purpose was to minister God to the nations, to be a blessing to them. And Jesus reminds them of this, verse 17. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? See, the temple was supposed to be part of non-Jewish people's story with God. And instead, it had become a place to rip them off. And not only are the Israelites keeping the nations away from God, the crowds and the religious leaders have got really presumptuous about their standing before God. Jesus quotes another prophet to them, the prophet Jeremiah, verse 17, describing the temple, but you have made it a den of robbers. So just like the people in Jeremiah's day, they think, oh, look, as long as we've got the temple, you know, God's house, we're fine. You know, we can go through the motions, play a bit of lip service, and, and God will be kept happy. And then we can just sort of please ourselves. The temple that looks so good from a distance, like the fig tree, isn't doing its job. It isn't bearing fruit of genuine heart faith. And like the fig tree... Jesus rejects it. The days of the temple, being the way people can draw near to God, are over. It's over for the fig tree. It's over for the temple. And for Christians, we need to keep asking ourselves, has knowing that, God is Je- that, knowing that Jesus has made us right with God, has understanding and knowing God's grace turned into presuming on God's grace? For us, like those in the temple, it'll show up in in how we treat others, or whether or not we care about whether or not we care about others, knowing that knowing that grace. Do we think, look, I'm sorted, I'm fine, and then so would. Lose interest and stop worrying about things getting in the way of other people coming to know God and His grace. We need to always try and make sure that church, even online church, uh, is done with a view to someone you looking into Jesus being able to do exactly that. No barriers except the gospel. If you're not a believer, Well, think about these Israelites. They presumed that the temple was their guarantee of right standing with God. Well, what's yours? I mean, have you made the assumption that uh, something about you or what you believe or what you do makes you okay with God? Being a good enough person or believing that God is only love, not judgy. You know, he'll understand everything you've done and just just forgive. Or maybe you've written off God as unknowable. Well, Jesus says you can't play games with God. The Bible is clear that it's a terrible thing to have to face God on our own merits. We can't self-isolate and socially distance ourselves from our own sin through religiosity through going through the motions through doing enough good things to counterbalance them you know jesus is not fooled by the enthusiastic crowds that welcome him to jerusalem jesus is not fooled by the grandiosity of the temple and he won't be fooled by us The temple looks good from a distance, but there's no fruit. So what's the answer then? If God's Messiah has turned up at the temple and rejected it, well, how is anyone supposed to get right with God? Be close to God. Well, Jesus preaches a grand salvation, our last heading, a grand salvation. It's a grand salvation that on on first reading sounds too good to be true. So chapter 11, verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you will receive it, and it will be yours. Is Jesus really saying he will give us anything we ask for if only we believe without doubt? Does that mean if our prayers go unanswered it's just because we doubted too much? It's kind of our fault. Well no, that can't be right, can it? Uh, here's three quick three quick I think it lowers but three quick reasons why it can't be right. First of all, Jesus himself prays um, in the Garden of Gethsemane that the suffering he's about to face might be taken away. And I don't think we'd call Jesus a doubter. Also, the Apostle Paul, who wrote loads of the, most of the New Testament, talks about a thorn in his flesh, something that he prays will be taken away and never is. And thirdly, we just know from our own experience, don't we? You know, every Christian can tell you about a good, Godly prayers, God-focused, gospel-hearted prayers that they've prayed and believed would happen, convinced that God would answer, and they've not got what they asked for. We can all testify to that. Now, the key here is to realise that Mark hasn't just inserted a, a random anecdote about prayer in the middle of things. Now, this is still part of the same teaching block. It's still about Jesus being the Messiah and him rejecting the temple. And this passage started in verse 1 at the Mount of Olives, and now in verse 23, this mountain is talking about that too. Jesus is referring to Zechariah's prophecy again, his prophecy about the end of time, about the day of judgment. um, And he describes terrible judgment coming against humanity, but also an incredible rescue. God literally changes the landscape to provide an escape for his people. So from Zechariah. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Jesus is saying, God is willing to move mountains to save you. Look, going through the motions in the temple isn't going to save you. The earthly military king that you've been waiting for isn't going to save you. Your problem is much bigger than that. Our problem is much bigger than that. It's mountain sized. But God is willing and able to do the impossible. Uh, Verse 24 begins, therefore. So with all that promise of salvation in mind, have faith, trust God to save you, and ask him to do it. See that mountain language? It shows us just how uh, huge the problem between us and God is. How serious it is. It's the problem of sin. That's our prideful, rebellious, uh, self-serving rebellion against God. And what God is doing through his rescuer king, Jesus, is huge to overcome that. And when we get there, when our, when our eyes are opened to how great our need for God's grace is, how much grace we need, we understand that verse 25, our need to be forgiven. And whether or not we get that shows up in how we treat others, our willingness to extend grace to them. So whether you're a believer or not, the invite from Jesus is the same. Have faith, and that's not building up some kind of faith superpower in yourself. No, uh, it's faith is and faith is not like as somebody like Dawkins would say, deciding something is true despite evidence to the contrary. Now, faith in God, faith in His Saviour King Jesus, is following the evidence trail that Mark has laid out for us, and saying to Jesus, "I, I believe you." And I, I let go of myself, and I hang on to you. So say that to him. Say to God, I trust you with my life. I, I believe you when you say you can save me from from what I deserve for my sin. Say to God, well, I've got legitimate worries and concerns about all this COVID-19 business, but I trust that you've got it in hand. And I trust that even if it kills me, everything will be alright in the end, because everything is alright with you. Being in right relationship with God, the very thing you and I were made for, It not about a temple, It's not about doing enough of the right stuff. It's not about earthly things that can be taken away by something like COVID-19. It's about faith in Jesus and forgiveness from him. So let's pray for that forgiveness right now. Jesus, we believe that you are God's Saviour King, the Messiah. We confess that we've gone our own way. We've tried to save ourselves. We've sometimes taken your grace for granted. But we trust Jesus when he says that if we ask, you will move our mountain of sin and make clear the way to be in right relationship with you. Thank you for doing that through Jesus' death for us, paying the price for our sin. Lord, we're stressed and worried by the impact coronavirus is having on our everyday lives. And we hand that over to you as well. We hand our very selves to your care and to Jesus, trusting you for forgiveness. And we ask you to help us to forgive others and extend that grace to the the grace you've shown to us, to them. In the name of our servant King Jesus, Amen.